I feel right at home in this room. Back when I started medical school, the first day I actually, the first Sabbath, I was in Loma Linda. I wandered in, and there was a junior class meeting in the foyer there. And amazingly enough, um, they just asked me to teach. So I was the junior teacher right there in the foyer for nearly a year. A collegiate started up here, and they kind of drove us out. So we met down there, and then they asked me to teach up in the collegiate. It was the same as it is now, except it had a different carpet, and it was all folding chairs, which we set up. We had about 200 coming at the time. And it was at that time, my second year of medical school, that at the very end, actually it would have been, yes, end of my second year, that I led out in a series of right here on Friday nights on God's plan and courtship and marriage, a series of four. Christian's resources on spouse selection, cross. And um, so this brings back a flood of, of memories. It's uh, um, just being in this room. Now, one of the, can you see? Oh, if somebody will flip, I'll flip these off, because I know just what to do here. They're not all this bad. This is uh, the worst. This is the leather cover of a book, just in case you're wondering. You can't see it out there. But one of the highlights of young adulthood is courtship and marriage. The majority of Americans hold marriage in uh, high regard, and those who are single aspire to marriage. Ninety-three percent of all Americans hope to enter into a lasting and happy union with one person. That's reported by the U.S. Census Bureau. Over the last three decades, the majority of high schools, uh, students, seniors, have con consistently said that a good marriage and family life is extremely important to them. It's a popular topic. Courtship seminars, courtship books, and Internet sites have been a growth industry in the new millennia for the last five years. Uh, and dating services have popped up all over. Nevertheless, marriage rates continue to drop. And divorce rates remain high. Unmarried births and cohabitation is increasing. Now, it's nothing new or secret about have, uh, having a happy marriage. It's all explained in the only book that contains time-tested, reliable instruction. And Christian young people have often claimed during their courtship certain promises. Promises like Psalm 37, 4 that's on the screen. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. And they've claimed rather reluctantly, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. But it's not only promises to claim that 
the Bible gives. It also has instruction to follow. And that's what we want to look at this weekend. The Bible, you see, opens in the second chapter with a marriage scene, Genesis 2. And it closes in the next to the last chapter with another marriage scene. Christ's first miracle was at a wedding. Throughout the Bible, there's a theme on courtship and marriage, the joyful courtship of Isaac and Rebekah. And it, that encourages us with the happiness that a good marriage can bring. The deceptions practiced on Jacob during his courtship warn us of deceptions that can be perpetrated during this vulnerable period. And in the pages of the scriptures, we learn of the challenges Jesus' stepfather faced during his courtship with Mary. The creative courtship of the Benjamites seizing the dancing girls of Shiloh. There are cautions with the disastrous alliances between Solomon and his 700 wives. The marriage of Ahab and Jezebel and the sorrows of Hosea's experience. Although all of the Ten Commandments are at least indirectly related to home and marriage and family, fully 50% are explicitly related to marriage and family issues. God wants to give us the joy and spare us the sorrow of marriage. How can we have a marriage that doesn't end the romance of courtship? How can we have a life's partner that's a lifelong blessing? How can we have God's best for our life? It's a great responsibility to discuss this important topic with you, to take you on a journey to and through God's Word, since man is to live by every word contained in this precious book. Our weekend theme is Christian's Resources on Spouse Selection, Cross. In this noontime, we're going to look at God's purpose in marriage. Tonight at 7.30, we move from here to Burden Hall, and we'll look at God's ideal in courtship. What are the ingredients for a courtship that result in a world-impacting, life-changing marriage? How can we be certain that we are following God's guidance during courtship relationships? And then tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., again at Burden Hall, I have changed the topic from the advertised one to share, to share some research that I've just finished this week. I believe it may prove to be one of the most important lectures on this topic that I've ever given. The Bible gives a way to predict the future. If King Saul would have understood this, he would not have gone to the Witch of Endor. If our generation understood this, they wouldn't bother with the horoscope pages in the newspaper. This information is so powerful that Satan himself uses it to predict the future. The Bible gives us two ways we can predict our future, and we can use it to determine if we're going to have a happy marriage. So that's what I want to share tomorrow, Lord willing. That will be at the 10 o'clock one. Then... Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to look at key questions for courtship at 3 p.m. again at Burden Hall. A year and a half ago, 
I gave a series on dating and marriage right here. Actually, it was in Burden Hall at that time. And uh, those, those lectures are available on the Internet, Advent Hope. I, you all will know what, where to get it. I don't know. It's also contained in the workbook syllabus. I prepared many of the quotations from the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy. Um, and the Loma Linda University Student Association is providing a free copy of this workbook syllabus for those who attend the final lecture. This syllabus contains some very important information on timing of marriage, counseling with others regarding our dating plans. And uh, um, none of the lectures that I gave, the four lectures that I gave last year, am I repeating here? This is a, uh, further information. I am assuming the others are known. But before we look at God's Word, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we need the Holy Spirit here to guide us in our study, to protect us from the dangers of our preconceived notions, to open our hearts to truths that can, share, that can save us from lasting sorrow and give us eternal happiness. I pray that you will guide my lips and guide the ears and the thoughts as all of us turn our attention to what you'd have us understand about your purpose in marriage. In Christ's name, amen. Some people view marriage as a chemistry reaction. Molecules randomly bounce around and by chance determined by statistical probability join together. If not this one, that one will do. The old Oldest song croons, if the one you love ain't with you, love the one you're with. But this secular cynical viewpoint is not the biblical Christian view. Micah 4.12, they do not know the thoughts of God. They do not understand His plan. And the Word of God has found a better plan, a, a way formulated in the mind of God that will best meet our needs and prepare us for increased usefulness both here and hereafter. And when we follow God's plan for our lives, our joy is full. To understand God's purpose in courtship, God's plan in courtship, we really need to understand one of God's major purposes for marriage. Now, I'd encourage you, if I'm in blocking your way from seeing, uh, move so that you can see the notes on the screen. Courtship in marriage is a major activity of humans, but it sets us apart from angels. Jesus said that in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. The angels do not marry, and when we go to heaven, we'll join them. They do not court. After our resurrection in our glorious bodies, we'll not be dating. We'll not marry or be given in marriage because God has something even better in heaven. But on this earth, God's plan for most is courtship, dating, marriage. Why? There must be some important reason for marriage. To understand God's process for courtship, 
We must understand God's purpose for marriage and Satan's strategy to defeat God's plan for marriage. Notice the context of the familiar verse of Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. The verses just before us tell us why God saw it wasn't good. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, if Adam would have been by himself, he would have eaten of the forbidden tree. It would not have been good for Adam to be by himself with this kind of temptation. It wouldn't have been good for him to be alone with the, with the tree. One of the great purposes of courtship and marriage is to help strengthen us to meet temptation. Ecclesiastes 4.12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand it. It was God's design that the two combined would be stronger to resist temptation and it was Satan's purpose to frustrate God's plan in marriage. He He plots to make the parties weaker for their marriage. He plots to make us less able to resist temptations through our marriage. And he succeeded with Adam and Eve. Eve, who was to strengthen Adam to meet the temptation, weakened him. And we know the story. Notice how Malachi describes God's great purpose in marriage. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Did he not make them one? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. God's purpose in marriage is for parents to be strengthened to resist evil and have a godly offspring, godly seed. His purpose is to have families where piety reigns. That's his plan. Now, it's important for us not to misunderstand this passage and think it refers simply to biological children. Don't miss this point. It is referring to the home as a center of support for evangelistic training and soul winning, evangelistic effort, regardless of whether they have children or not. One may not have physical children, but we are at least to have spiritual children. We can help win other children and adults to Christ. And God intends that every husband and wife should have the joy of at least one soul saved in the kingdom because of their marriage, and some will have many. Notice what Isaiah 54.1 says. Sing, O childless woman, break forth into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem, even though you never gave birth to a child, for the woman who could bear no children now has more than all the other women, says the Lord. Notice how the Amplified Version translates this verse. Sing, O barren one, you who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who did not travail with child. For the, notice that next word, spiritual children of the desolate, desolate one, will be more than the children of the married wife, says the Lord. So let me repeat this point. Our marriages are to produce godly seed. This can be evangelistically or biologically. God's word declares that this is the purpose of marriage. And during courtship, this goal must be clearly kept in mind. God did not design courtship 
to simply bring two consenting adults together in marriage, but to unite two godly people together in a work that could never be done by either alone. A single man, a single woman, however committed, however spiritual, however talented, cannot alone have a child. And there are some things that require two. And God designed it this way. No man liveth unto himself. God designed that a marriage would enable a man and a woman to do together for God what they could never do alone for God. Just as we cannot produce offspring alone. If we follow Christ's plan for courtship, we will not date or marry anyone that would hinder God's plan. We will only date and marry one who can help us have a godly home. His plan will not happen with mere random unions. We are not simply molecules bouncing off wherever and whatever is nearest us. Adventist Home 102, talking of two Christian young people, marriage does not lessen their usefulness, but what's the next word? Strengthens it. They may make that married life a ministry to do what? Win souls to Christ. Because God's thoughts on a topic are not our thoughts on a topic, because God's ways of courtship are not our ways of courtship, we need to consider God's thoughts and ways. And for the weekend, we'll be looking at courtship. But we need to begin by having a clear idea of our goal. You see, for many people, courtship in marriage is about their desires, their likes, their plans, their preferences. But when we understand God's thoughts, His desires, His plans, we will see that His thoughts are so much deeper, His desires so much more desirable, that we will gladly exchange our plans for His. I used to skip the begats of the Bible when I would read it. Most of you know what I'm talking about. All the list of who was the father of whom. Recently, I found them intensely interesting. Through the begats, I have discovered God is helping us understand what a godly offspring is. Please turn to the first of the begats, Genesis 5, if you have your Bible or I have it on the screen. Genesis 5.1 begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. What is another name for generations? Offspring or family. This is... The story of a family. You see, the story of the Bible is the story of one family, the family of Adam. Because the genealogical record has been preserved in the Bible, we are able to trace through the effects of the sins of the fathers and their posterity from this one family. And we are able to see the effects of good choices on family lines as well. It is the choices at courtship that determine the family line at marriage. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Verse 3, And Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Now, notice verse 1 again. How did God create Adam? In his own likeness, his image, in the likeness of God. Now look at verse 3. What does this verse tell us about our children? They are made in our image. 
Adventist Home 172. The physical and mental condition of the parents is perpetuated in the offspring. And so is the spiritual. There are exceptions, of course. But to fulfill the divine purpose in marriage, that is a godly seed, we must be godly parents, godly people. Marriage is not something you simply do for yourself. It has immense consequences. It concerns your offspring. If you care about your children, you'll be very careful in your choice of a life's partner. You see, the inheritance you give your children does not come at the end of your life, but at the beginning of theirs. God is calling for young people to be godly and to unite with godly young people. In Happiness Homemade or Adventist Home, page 173, fathers and mothers may study their own character in their children. Those of you who are not married can't know this. But as a married father, I can tell you I have three little mirrors, bigger mirrors, but one is still little. They may often read humiliating lessons as they see their own imperfections reproduced in their sons and daughters. While seeking to repress and correct in their children hereditary tendencies to evil, parents should call to their aid double patience, perseverance, and love. After all, we made them what they are. But back to the begats in chapter 5 of Genesis. Look at verse 3 again. What was the name of Adam's son? Seth. Was Seth Adam's first son? No, it was at least his third. His first two sons' genealogy is given in chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 tells us about the first child, Cain, the first brother, Abel. And of course, we know the story. Abel was what? was murdered. Were they married at the time? We don't know. There's a Jewish tradition that Eve gave birth to consanguineous twins that Cain and Seth ultimately married their twin sisters. I don't know if that's true. But I wonder about the courtship of Cain. What would go through a girl's mind that would lead her to marry Cain? He was violent with those who disagreed with him. He was a murderer. He was a liar. Wouldn't a girl be afraid of him? Would she feel safe with him? If he lied to God... Could she trust him to tell the truth to her? Perhaps his sister felt sorry for him, thought she could change him. It's a common trap. Or maybe his sister agreed with him and sympathized with him. She might not have gotten along with Abel herself. She might have found, she may have found Cain less boring, more adventuresome, more exciting. Or perhaps The sister was afraid she wouldn't get married. There didn't seem to be much to choose from. Abel was dead. Cain was the only game in town. There are a ton of rationalizations to choose from to justify a poor choice from a life's partner. But for whatever reason, Cain found a wife. And interestingly, the Bible gives the genealogy of Cain. Verse 16, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. This is uh, Genesis 4. 
and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Cain was in the image of his father, Adam, who fled from the presence of God. Like father, like son. Fleeing from the presence of God. He did not want to be near God. He did not want to retain God in his knowledge. And his wife followed him in his rebellion. Imagine living in a home away from the presence of the Lord. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch. Of course, this Enoch was not the Enoch that was translated later. With the passage of time, others joined Cain in his rejection of God's commandments. We never sin alone. A lot joined him. He built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. It's popular to sin. The father of the cities of this world is Cain. This was no city whose builder and ruler was God. This was a city established in rebellion to God. Cain sought to place his children's affections on this world. He sought to give them the rewards that God gives his children. He made his son a name by building him a city. God had promised to give us a city and a name. But God's promises are enduring. His are the gifts we must seek for our children. The evil Enoch and his city have long since been forgotten. But those parents who cooperate with God to lead their children to the tree of life, give them a gift that keeps on giving forever. And then Enoch was born Arid, and Arid begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. Cain's sons were like himself. They didn't desire God in their midst. They would not have this man reign over them. And each generation sank lower than the prior generation distinguishing itself by only greater sin. Evil men and seducers waxed worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul describes it well. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, that is, those things which are improper. The world rapidly became corrupt, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, every kind of evil flourished, you see. These were not men who lived in darkness. They knew of the creation and fall. They would visit Eden and see the Shekinah glory guarding the way to the tree of life. But they, like their father Cain, did not desire God or his guidance. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which do these things, which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They loved the wicked and fellowshiped with them. There was no reproof of evil. There was no restraint of evil by parents or children. There was nothing to distinguish the children except greater wickedness than their fathers. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of one was Ada and the other Zillah. Adding sin to sin, Lamech introduced polygamy. His children took advantage of the opportunities of business lines to amass fortunes there in the cities. Ada bore Jabel, excuse me, 
I can uh, Ada Borjabel, he was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. He developed portable dwellings for sale, and from his large cattle herds, he could then sell meat to the city dwellers. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. Jabel took advantage of the idleness of the city dwellers to make a fortune entertaining them with music. And Zella, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Tubalcane, the first half-brother, developed the brass and iron industries for city construction, travel, protection, and warfare. And the sister of Tubalcane was Nema. Apparently she was a beautiful woman. This is suggested by the meaning of her name. This wicked family was recognized and honored by the world. They were wealthy and influential. Like his father Cain, Lamech was a murderer. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Was he repenting? No, far from it. He was blasphemous. Using God's forbearance toward Cain as a model, he boasted that if Cain was protected by God after murdering his brother, he would be protected 11 times more. But Cain's genealogy is a dead end. There's no future. There's no hope for those families who leave the presence of God and despise his counsel and have none of his reproof. Ecclesiastes 8.12, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with a God-fearing man who are reverent before God. The history of Cain's family speaks to us today. All who live have a family line. We choose what type of posterity we shall leave. We can establish and continue a long line of abandoned sinners far from the presence of God, or we can establish or continue a royal line of loyalty to God. How different is the history of Seth's family? Genesis 4.25 tells us a bit more about the history of the Seth's birth. God was preserving a godly seed for Adam. Abel had been murdered. Cain was now gone and at the head of a bull line of sinners. But God was not going to allow the light of truth to go completely out. He would raise up a godly seed. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Now look at verse 4 of Genesis 5. What is the history we have of Adam after the fall? He had sons and daughters. Then he died. Please look at verses 3, 6, and 7. What do these verses tell us about Seth? He was a son of Adam. He was a chip off the old block. He too had children. Of all the accomplishments and activities of Seth's 912 years of life, what of importance does the Bible record? He had Enos and other sons and daughters, he had a family. He was the head of a family. The greatest blessings and the deepest sorrows come from those we marry who make up our families. 
Genesis 4.26 adds a little detail about the birth of Enos. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. The birth of Enos, you see, heralded the first general worldwide revival. God's Spirit was still striving with men. And it was from the godly family, the godly home of Seth, that Enos would emerge. He taught men how to pray. And they did pray. Now let's go on to verse 9. Enos begat Canaan and begat sons and daughters. And so forth. What do we know of Canaan or Mahalaleel? They were heads of families. God considered this so important that He preserved the record of this. And the next four verses continue the same story, only about Jared. Of the first thousand years of this earth's history, that's all we know. That's all God has preserved. We know they were married, they were given in marriage, they courted, dated, married. And then parents begat children in their image for a thousand years. You see, the Bible is the family story of the human race. We can prove that God became a man. We can trace his ancestors back to Adam. Whose image was Adam? God's. Was Adam a good copy? Yes. Whose image was Adam's son? Seth. Adam's. Was Seth more like God or less like God? Less. Like a copier or a digital, uh, an analog tape recorder, each generation is less like the original. The image of God was fading. In one group, it faded very rapidly. Cain's children were called the sons of men, but the image faded more slowly in Seth's righteous line. And for generations, they were called the sons of God. The link would still be seen. The Bible history pauses for a moment at Enoch. He doesn't just have a child. He's not simply a part of the list of the heads of families. Enoch, verse 22, says, Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. When was that walk? When did it begin? After he begat Methuselah. This was the first child, and for a time it was Enoch's only begotten son. Something happened when Enoch became a father. If it is this something that God desires for every family. He wants it before we are married, before we have children. Then he wants it to deepen and ripen as we have a godly offspring. Enoch began to walk with God. This was God's purpose, you see, for marriage. But it was not until seven generations from Adam that a father finally really got it. Why did having a child change Enoch? He loved his son and began to comprehend something of God's love for him. And as he daily watched Methuselah's maturation, he saw a mirror of the maturation which God sought for him. And he felt the warmth of Methuselah's hand, his love for him, his absolute trust for his dad's ability to protect him. And he saw God's relationship and desires for him. And just as his son would go for a walk with him, he began to go for walks with God. God designs for children to be a great blessing in our homes, not something that we would desire to abort. He designs to teach us something of His love for us and how can we fellowship with Him. But is this automatic? 
Do all parents walk with God after children? Is this mentioned of any other parents of the begats? No, unfortunately no. In fact, often children will make parents worse. The first adultery in marriage life often comes right after latent pregnancy or right after birth. And often parents will follow evil examples and practices of their children. Adopt the styles, go to the entertainment, the music, so they won't be old-fashioned. But what did Enoch do when he had a child? He walked with God. Does God want children in our homes to lead us to walk with Him? He was so pleased, He put this experience of Enoch in the Bible. Of all the events of the world before the flood, of all the experiences that could be mentioned, of all the good things that men did, this is the only one that God will mention. Does this give us insight into what God thinks is important? Doesn't God give us children to intensify our prayers to bring us into a closer relationship with Him? What does the expression walk with God mean? Can you go in opposite directions and walk with somebody? Can you go at different speeds or times and walk with somebody? You can't be walking together unless you're in agreement. Location, time, speed, direction. Walking together has something to do with fellowship. My wife and I, when we go for a walk, we don't just walk quietly. We're talking. We look forward to it. Now, how can we walk with Jesus and our families? See, the world was going in one direction. God was going in another. Enoch had to choose who he was going to walk with. God or the world. He that walketh with the wise shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. If you want a happy marriage with a godly seed, begin your daily walk with God before you ever begin to think about dating. When you date, go on even longer walks with God. Walking with Him, learning how to get His instruction in the small details of our lives, we are preparing to understand His will in the big decisions of life. Enoch, you see, did not learn to do evil from the godless around him. He didn't serve the idols of the wicked world. He was not influenced to do evil. He walked with God. He raised his children away from the defilements of this world. His, na- his time was not consumed with obtaining riches. He walked with God. The world derided his commitment, called it fanaticism, but he didn't seek the world's honor. Today, we do not even know the name of one of the world's honored in Enoch's day. We don't know the name of even one of their great sports hero or famous actors. No. But we do know the name of Enoch. God honored him. And God's honor is enduring. You see, God built Enoch's house. Methuselah begot Lamech and sons and daughters. and Then Lamech begot a son. Notice verse 29. God pauses again in the story of families to talk of something worth remembering. Lamech called his son's name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. What was resting on the ground? Cursed. 
This curse was increasingly evident as the sins of the world increased. As families departed more and more from the commands of God. But against the curse of God, God provided tokens of his favor. Lamech regarded his son as such a token, a comfort, a rest. While all the world around was pressing on in evil, the godly Lamech found in his son a promise of divine favor, divine comfort. What is God trying to tell us? Families are the most important part of history. It's not just an insignificant event when people marry. It is not an insignificant event when they have children. They have children like themselves. They are reproducing and multiplying themselves in the world for better or for worse. When they are critical, they produce critical children. The sins of the parents become generational. As the commandment says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. I would consider this as a child. And it was a restraining thought in my courtship and marriage days that the choices I was making then, even eight or nine years old, would influence my children. It ought to be a restraining thought. God wants this to restrain us. God wants our spouse to strengthen us to re resist temptation. He wants our children to lead us to walk with God. He wants us to have comfort in the midst of a curse. He wants us to reject the sins of our parents. He wants us to follow holiness without which no one can see the Lord. He wants us to raise the fallen standard of many generations. Although He is building us mansions in heaven, from our courtship, He wants to build us a happy home on this earth. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. What does it mean to have the Lord build a house? What was Jesus' occupation? Carpenter. Is this telling us we need to hire Jesus as the contractor for any house we would build? No. To build a house was the Hebrew expression to have a family line. And uh, um, I just put on a couple quotes here and moving on. A family line was to build a house. God wants us to have a house that is a posterity. Behold, children are the heritage from the Lord. This is His design. For the godly, this design is met. For them, God will build and establish their house. He will preserve their line. Disappointments and Sorrows they may have in abundance with poverty, but they will be happy. And the world which derides them will still be benefited by them. And did he not make them one, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Do you have the same goal as God for your marriage? Do you seek a life's partner who will strengthen your ability to resist and stand against temptation? Do you seek a life's partner who will enhance your ability to win souls? Do you want a godly seed? Do you just want it? Or are you willing, by God's help and by His grace, to follow Christ 
and live by every word that proceeds from his mouth. God's word alone will give the secret of a wise courtship that will produce such a marriage. And tonight at Burden Hall at 7.30, we'll look at how we can follow Christ in our dating to have such a wonderful goal. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, it's amazing your instruction in Scripture, your plan for us. To become like you and multiply you on this earth. To have a family full of happiness and joy. Because they're full of Jesus and His likeness. Have a family that's involved in service and bringing others to Jesus. Reproducing not simply biologically, but influentially, evangelistically. Oh, dear Lord, there may be someone here that's not made that commitment. But in the quietness of their hearts and in their minds, they say to you, Lord, I would like to have that kind of marriage. There may be someone here that's single who would like to say, while our heads are bowed, like to say by putting up their hands, Lord, I want to have a godly home with godly seed. If that's your commitment, would you put up your hand? Lord, you've seen the hands. You've heard the thoughts. You see all things. Bless us as we continue this study this evening, preparing for the Sabbath in Christ's name. Amen.